Our scripture reading today for the sermon is from Luke chapter 19, which is on page 1044. If you're using the black Bibles that are provided for you, we are at the end of chapter 19, uh, beginning in verse 28. So I invite you to stand if you are able for the reading of God's word. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this. The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So as the subtitle points out uh, in, the, in the bulletin, we are, we are now entering the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. This is Sunday, moving into Monday, and by sunset Friday, Jesus will be dead. 
And so in one sense, there's uh, you would want to know, well, what is Jesus's focus then? Uh, if you knew that by Friday you would be dead, what would be your focus? And I, I have to confess, like I, if I knew Friday I would be dead, I wouldn't care about any of you. Uh, I would be home with my family. Jesus, knowing that he is going to be dead on Friday, increases his care. Uh, not just for the lost, but even for those who will betray him, for those who will abandon him, for, for those who will murder him. Uh, Jesus, uh, in one sense, you watch him and listen to him over this next week, and you realize that even the things he's saying might have, if he had just kept his mouth shut, maybe it would have delayed what seems like the inevitable. But Jesus embraces uh, his call, even as he has embraced it all throughout Luke, even as all the way back in chapter 9, we're told that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so he began this long journey, this intentional journey to Jerusalem. And in Chapter 13, it says, as he continued journeying toward Jerusalem. And in chapter 17, and while he was on his way to Jerusalem, and several times, at least two more times in there, Jesus himself, not just Luke, but Jesus says to his disciples, look, we are going to Jerusalem, and I am going to be betrayed and beaten and insulted and flogged and killed. And the third day, I will rise from the dead. Jesus, this week of intentional living is no different than Jesus' entire life. He has lived his life intentionally, intentionally loving his father, intentionally loving all of those around him, knowing that even that love would be misunderstood and used to accuse him. So we look at this passage, the, the easiest breakdown are the, the three sort of almost seemingly separate accounts of, of Jesus, his royal entry, his real sorrow, and his, his righteous anger. When we look at the royal entry or the triumphal entry, as we call it so often, uh, this is one of the, you know, there are obviously the crucifixion, the resurrection. Uh, there are parts of Jesus's life that every gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all write about. But then there are parts of Jesus's life, even in this last week, there are parts that some write about and others don't. So, for example, the, the Last Supper, the institution of the Last Supper is not mentioned at all in John, although the evening of that and what occurs during the supper and his teachings during that supper are throughout John and cover a large section of John. 
The triumphal entry is one of those passages, one of those accounts, one of those moments in Jesus' life that all four gospel writers speak of. They all write about the triumphal entry. And while sometimes it can be helpful to kind of meld them all together so you get a more accurate kind of timeline and a, a more accurate picture of what happens, like four eyewitnesses telling you about what happened on that day, uh, it's also helpful sometimes to look at them individually, even with knowing what else others tell us, and ask the questions, well, why, why did you leave that part out? Or why did you add this part? Uh, Luke doesn't mention the children that other gospel writers mention. Luke doesn't mention the palm branches that, for which we name the Sunday before Easter that we celebrate palm Sunday. That is the very Sunday that we are on here, the inaugural Palm Sunday, and yet Luke mentions no palms. I forget whether it's Matthew or Mark that lets us know that there were two beasts of burden, the colt and its mother. Uh, we're told why, in fact, Luke's account is the most succinct of the triumphal entry. In fact, Luke's account is not really a triumphal entry. It's more of a triumphal approach. He doesn't actually go into Jerusalem in Luke's account, though we know he does, and we're told by other writers, we're even told by other writers, that it'll be the next day that he returns to the temple and drives out the sellers. But Luke puts it all together. He brings it all together. Why? And again, I think it's because the entire focus of the passage is not on the crowds and not on their actions, but on Jesus. We are to be drawn directly to Jesus through Luke's account. To ask, We're forced to ask questions like, who is he? Who is this? That's why all four tell us about the, listen, when you go into town, you're going to find a donkey tied up. Bring it to me. If anyone asks, tell them the Lord has need of it. And we ponder, we wondered, is this just someone that Jesus had spoken to earlier? Has he arranged this already? But Luke even though that may be the case, Luke lays it out and even uses language to cause you to say, who is this? They went to town and found everything just as Jesus said. Who is this that knows exactly what is happening? And he claims, he claims authority and hierarchy even over the owners of the donkey. Ownership doesn't even matter so much to Jesus. The owners, it's not even a crowd, but the owners themselves are saying, Hey, what are you doing with my donkey? The Lord has need. Oh, okay then. Why didn't you say so? We're told by Luke it's, it's a cult that has never, no one has ever ridden before. 
it's uh there's an intentionality behind that language. It's beast of burden that has never bore any burden before. It, it sort of reminds you of the two oxen that had never carried or hauled anything before, and the Ark of the Covenant is put on them, on the cart, for them to carry back. Here's this colt that no other human has ever sat on. It is transportation fitting for a king. Only a king has ever ridden this animal before. The cloaks on the colt, the cloaks on the road imply this royal treatment. It's like a, it would be like when we roll out the red carpet, people laying their, their cloaks on the road so that even, even the donkey doesn't walk on the dirt. It's this act of, of honor, of receiving a, a royal dignitary. And then we're told that the whole multitude of his disciples praise God. They begin to worship God for all of the things that they have experienced thus far, all the things that Jesus has done, and they praise God. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. And again, it's Luke. So you're supposed to hear what you actually hear. And I'll bet you heard it, didn't you? Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. It sounds vaguely familiar. It sounds like something the angels sang when he was born. Peace on earth. Glory in the highest. Luke brings us right back to the birth of Jesus. To us, a son is given. And it's interesting, as long as Jesus has been willing to sort of sidestep this whole Messiah question, as long as he's willing to sort of downplay these things, the Pharisees, the priests, like they, they'll let him get away with it. But here, there is no mistaking. Here, there's, there's no getting away from it. Jesus is far from backing down. If anything, you might say Jesus is orchestrating the whole thing. He knows what's going to happen when he asks for the colt. He knows, and here are the people singing his praises. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, who brings peace and glory in the highest. Far from backing down from these implications, Jesus leaves no room. For any doubt, at least any doubt of who Jesus thinks he is. Like we often, you'll hear that like, well, the disciples made more of it than Jesus did. Well, there is no avoiding that Jesus thinks he's something here. Not only does he think he's something, like they say to him, hey, tell your disciples to calm down. Like this is uh, a little out of hand. And he doesn't say, oh, you're right. People are going to misunderstand this. He says, let me tell you, if they keep silent, the rocks will cry out. If they don't praise me, creation itself will. So, again, not something a good teacher says. I think we've got 
We've got elections coming up this year. I imagine if we had a candidate, and you know, whatever you think of any of our previous or former or whatever candidates, maybe you might even think, well, we have one that thinks that. But whatever. If we had a candidate who actually said, do you know creation praises me? Vote for me. Rocks. Like, if you won't vote for me, I don't even care. The rocks themselves will rise up and declare me president. I mean, you'll be like, okay, I, I'm glad I did not early vote. No, Jesus can't be good unless he's God. Because he is making claims of deity here. If they don't praise me, creation itself will praise me. A good man who's not God doesn't say things like that. This We are left with Luke's description being forced to answer the question, who is Jesus? And the entire triumphal entry says he is the king, he is Messiah, he is God himself. What are you going to do with that? How will you respond? His disciples praise him. But not just Jesus' comment about the rocks that only occurs in Luke, but the next passage, the real sorrow of Jesus. Only Luke points this out to us. And it's, uh, it's sort of a buzzkill, isn't it? Like, here's the triumphal entry. Here's the praises. We're going to name one of our Sundays after this day. And as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, he weeps. He weeps. It's not what you expect as the climax of the triumphal entry to see a weeping king entering his city. It's interesting. A few years ago, we were in First and Second Samuel. And maybe you remember when, when King David is betrayed by his son. And all of Jerusalem uh, backs King David's son. And so, if you remember, David has to leave. He has to flee. He leaves Jerusalem. He leaves the city. And we're told in 2 Samuel 15, the, the route, the route, the path that he takes out of Jerusalem takes him up the Mount of Olives. And we're told that King David exited Jerusalem up the Mount of Olives, weeping. Weeping that his people had rejected him. And now we have this picture of David's son, yet David's Lord coming down the Mount of Olives, entering Jerusalem and weeping at the rejection of his people. If you had only known, 
if you had only known what makes for peace with God. His disciples had just sung it, peace in the heavens, glory in the highest, if you had only known what makes for peace with God. That God had sent his son, who would be a sacrificial lamb for your sins, if you had only known who it was that was coming to bring peace. But you would not have it. There's a difference between peace in this world and peace with God. Those are at odds. Uh, The writer James tells us, friendship with the world is enmity with God. You cannot have peace with your sin and peace with God. And Jesus is genuinely heartbroken over the hardness of the people's hearts. So just in this section here, like it, 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 it's enough to make us pause and, and just for a quick application. First of all, am I heartbroken over the hardness of this world's heart? Do I weep for the lost? Or do I sit in judgment? Do I stand to the side like the Pharisee in the parable? God, I'm so glad I'm not like them. Those bad people who do bad things and vote for the wrong person. Am I heartbroken? Do I remember that I was dead in my trespasses, that I was completely blind to God's goodness, and that without His mercy, I would still be dead and blind? Do I see the dead and the blind around me, and does my heart break for them, or do I simply can't wait for them to get theirs? Jesus weeps. He genuinely weeps knowing that it is their sin, it is their, it's only what they deserve, but he weeps over them. And then the second thing I would like you to consider is Jesus weeps over you. You might be certain that you are too far gone. That this is, it's a bridge too far. You've burned it too many times. There's no turning back. Do you know that Jesus weeps for you? If you would only know what would make for peace with God, that you could have peace internally, that he has come to save you from your sin. Receive him. Jesus has a genuine sorrow over the lost, but this does not mean that he does not have the right to be angry over sin. The righteous anger. And again, Luke just 
keeps it all very succinct. He doesn't even tell us. He went into the temple, looked around, and went went back to Bethany for the night. He just brings it all together here. Here is Jesus coming straight into the temple. And again, the whole passage screaming at us, who is this Jesus? He's the king who has the right to enter Jerusalem as its king and savior. He is the one who weeps over the lost, and he is the one who has the right to cleanse his temple, to claim that worship be done with dignity and honor and respect, and it be open to all who would come. You might think, boy, you get a lot out of, he drove out the sellers. So like, in the temple, the largest court area of the temple was called the Gentile court. So the temple had this huge acres of space in it, that was intended for the receiving of Gentile worshipers. Gentiles were welcome into the temple to worship the one true God. And in Jesus' day, that area had been turned into a marketplace because it was large and open and wide and and. People needed to buy sacrifices that were unblemished. If you made a long trek to Jerusalem and brought your lamb with you, and if it got hurt, then you were out of luck. Like that lamb was hurt, and now it's blemished, and you can't sacrifice. So you would come empty-handed, but with some money. And and on your way down the Mount of Olives, there were different markets that you could stop at and buy a lamb on your way in. But the... The Sanhedrin, the the people in charge of the temple, they decided that they wanted to get in on that action. And so they set up a marketplace right inside the temple. I mean, your, your lamb could still get hurt. So come straight to the temple, buy your lamb, exchange your money, get some of the temple shekels that you need. And well, there's a little bit of a interest rate. And but I mean, it's pretty convenient. You come straight to the temple to exchange your money. It's very easy. We're We're doing this for you. It's a service to you. And it It actually kept the Gentiles from being able to worship. It took the place where the Gentiles would come and worship God and turned it into a marketplace. And that's why the the call to worship from Isaiah, because that's where Jesus goes to you. This was supposed to be my house is supposed to be a house of prayer. Notice that Jesus says my house and other places. They say my father's house. Jesus says, it's written, my house is to be a house of prayer. But it's a shortened version. The full sentence is, my house is to be a house of prayer for the nations. This is Jesus' anger that they've, they are not only not, even as in the prophets they say, not only do you not come return to God, you make it impossible for others to return to God. Like they have kept the Gentiles from coming and worshiping God. They've turned the house, literally, from Jeremiah into a den of robbers. The entire passage is about the authority 
the compassion, the righteousness of Jesus as the Son of God. That Jesus has the authority to receive praises, praises that sound very much like they are praises for God. Jesus receives those praises. Jesus weeps over the lost. Jesus has the right to cleanse the temple and restore its purposes as a house for the nations to praise and pray to God. And in many ways, this is the final straw to those that despise Jesus. From this point on, they will look for ways to destroy him. So we have to ask the question, like, where am I with all of this? Am I, am I just in the crowds? Am I in the crowd that, that worships Jesus, that is grateful for all the things that he has done? Do I recognize the compassion of Jesus that everything is done is to bring him to the place of death on a cross? Am I one of the residents of Jerusalem that just, I hear all about the peace that he brings, but it's just not for me? Am I one of the Pharisees that just despises the idea that God has the right to tell me how to worship him, that God has the right to make his house a house of prayer? We are... You know, we're in the process. It's the end of the year. You know, it's time to like elders and deacons start looking to the next year and dreaming. And, and what's, what is the next year about? What is it that we should be focusing on? And what would, what if, what if our focus was hope of Christ is known as a house of prayer? Like we pray expectantly we pray hopefully we pray honestly that this would be a house of prayer for the nations let's pray Sometimes, Jesus, we come to you uh, really just based on your past uh, work in our lives. We don't, we don't deny that your disciples were praising you, but there is something in the phrase for all that you had done, all the mighty things they'd seen you do. And, and it is easy to praise you when we see you doing great things. And it is harder, admittedly, to praise you when things aren't so great. God, would you make us a people who are compassionate toward the lost, who worship and praise you rightly, and who 
pray to you and invite others to come and pray to you. God, would you make hope of Christ a house of prayer for all the nations? In Jesus' name, amen.